Eyes cool. 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 Welcome back to the Eyes Cool podcast. So called because Eyes Cool sounds like Eyes Cool. I'm your host, Jonathan Senshin. The iSchool podcast is brought to you by students and faculty of the Information School of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As always, the opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the iSchool or of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're available in all the podcast places, so subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, leave us a review, tell your friends. This week... We hear from students in UW-Madison's Master in Library and Information Studies program to discuss UW-Madison iSchool alum Melissa Adler's book, Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge. Welcome to our segment on Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge by Melissa Adler. Before we start, we're going to introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Steph. I use she, her pronouns. I am a cis woman who has alternately identified as bi, queer, and ace, and I specialize in American history and archives, and I have particularly studied uh, the federal government, the Library of Congress, and queer history in the past. I am Mars. I use the pronouns they and she interchangeably. Um, I am a queer gaysian. Um, I'm aspec, and I'm bi. I tend to focus on things that um, are intersectionally related to me, therefore things that are related to being a person of color or being queer. That's what I take into um, my librarianship. My name is Becca. I use she, her pronouns. I've identified alternately as bisexual and queer for most of my life. My background is that I am a board-certified psychiatrist. I have a history of working with transgender populations. I studied a special elective in medical school at the Program in Human Sexuality at University of Minnesota under Dr. Eli Coleman, and I am currently completing a certificate in sexuality studies, including sexology. So I come at this from a number of different subject positions. And my name is Katerina. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I have alternately identified as bisexual, pansexual, queer, and demi. Um, and my background is actually in modern Japanese literature with a focus on um, representations of women and queerness. So part of what we're doing here is making a point to explicate all of our different subject positions, both because our later discussion is going to be grounded in our experiences, our identities, and our subjectivities, and also because subjectivity and identity, especially queer identity, are central to this book. Yeah, um, and basically what we're going to be doing is giving an overview on the overarching themes and different things talked about in the book, and then we're going to be moving towards more of a freeform discussion on ideas that were brought forth in the book and how we reacted to that given our different experiences. So we're going to basically just start off with 
the idea that the Library of Congress is a government organization, which means that it is centered on what the government needs, and despite being proclaimed and uh, celebrated protection of intellectual freedom, as Adler points out in the preface on page 7, the library inhibits intersectionality and intertextuality. Definitely. And throughout the book, Adler references and puts to work the writings of different theorists, scholars, and scientists, and some um, scientists, shall we say, um, from Deleuze to Krafft Ebbing. Um, and in particular, she consistently interweaves Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's groundbreaking queer theory text, Epistemology of the Closet. And she also makes frequent use of Foucault's ideas linking knowledge, power, and then going back to what Marx was saying, the state. In the title of the book, and then also throughout, is this idea of cruising the library. Um, so Adler describes this as, quote, a method for understanding the ways in which the library inhibits intersectionality and intertextuality by reducing bodies of literature to disciplined, discrete subjects distributed across the library. So then the process of cruising the library is this looking through of the stacks and having to go to many different places to try to find these queer subjects or racialized subjects that are scattered throughout the library and taking chances that you might run into something painful, like seeing a book about queer identity shelved right next to books about child molestation, for example, in pursuit of what you desire to find. Um, as a part of this, she suggests that sexuality is an organizing principle upon which all else is based, also drawing from Foucault, and that the library is what she calls an erotically charged space, and that perversion is not an identity, but it's a process in Adler's book for destabilizing those mechanisms that structure and sustain normative sexualities and identities. So in other words, to quote Adler again, Perversion turns the system in on itself. It reveals the absurdity and impossibility of mastering the bibliographic universe. Continuing on through the book, um, Adler basically takes the reader through the cataloging processes and discusses the politics, power plays, and discrimination inherent in determining names for subject headings, labeling individual books and collections, and physically locating and collecting books on the library shelves. Right. So in order to do this, um, Adler uses several specific case studies to illustrate these aspects and examine their histories vis-a-vis -vis the cataloging of non-normative sexualities. So Adler is specifically talking about non-normative sexualities as a whole, not just queer in terms of LGBTQ+, but also including any identities, expressions, and performativities of the queer heteronormativity and its expectations, which includes BDSM as a non-normative expression of sexuality. And she also discusses the cataloging of race, particularly apropos of queerness. So the way she does this is by naming the progression from the original subject heading, sexual perversion, which encompassed a moral judgment and condemnation. So the original subject heading of sexual perversion, the literary reference that the LOC used for that uh, subject heading, as Adler points out, was Kraft Ebbing's seminal work, Psychopathia Sexualis, which she points out, 
was not intended as a lay public work. This mm. was intended exclusively as a work for professional use. So right from the very beginning, by using this subject heading, the LOC was making a deliberate choice to use medicalizing language that was also stigmatizing language that was really never intended to be used by users. Mm -hmm. So she also tracks then the change to sexual deviation, um, which foregrounds the existence of a norm and removes the potential to utilize perversion. So the idea is sexual deviation means deviation from the norm, which assumes that a norm exists. Mm -hmm. Then this heading was changed to paraphilias, which is inherently medicalized and obfuscating. The LOC stated that it chose this language because it was intended to be neutral and descriptive, but it is not. <laughs> and Adler makes this point in several different ways, and I was very grateful actually to have her make this point because even within my discipline, psychiatry, paraphilias as a diagnosis is a controversial diagnosis. Its inclusion in the DSM is completely uh, uh, controversial, even within its specialty category to say nothing of how it should be used outside its specialty category, which literally anyone who is a psychiatrist and is at all versed in non-normative sexualities would look at how the LOC is using the word paraphilia and think, what? <laughs> no! Um, so it's intended to be neutral and descriptive, but it's not. And because of automatic cataloging changes, a number of books that were originally coded as sexual perversion or sexual deviation in the catalog have automatically been shuffled into the designation of paraphilias, mm -hmm. whether or not anyone looking at what was actually in the book would think that they really belong there. So this dehistoricizes these texts and also presumes that all identities exist in the span of and can or should be measured by a single linear progress of time. So another thing that comes up a lot in Adler's book is the, co is the concept of the Delta Collection in the Library of Congress. Uh, the Delta Collection is materials thought of as obscene were seized in the mail by the government and many were forwarded to the Library of Congress. Uh, they were ostensibly in charge of preserving these materials, but also hiding them, restricting access to them, except for certain government officials, usually when they were looking at them for some sort of case. And this enforced erasure and silence of these subjects. And these subjects weren't just straight up pornography. They were also sex education materials and basically any LGBT material uh, distributed through the mail. This underlines that the Library of Congress is first and foremost a gov the government's library, specifically the Library of Congress, that is the legislature <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> branch, because the executive branch has its own has its own thing. It, that's that is NARA, that is the National Archives. That's an executive branch. Library of Congress is the is the legislative branch. And it is a state institution, the oldest federal cultural institution, and exists to serve the needs of the state, which have been, which is usually determined by those in power, white, cis, heterosexual, usually wealthy men, and thus are frequently at odds with the needs of its citizens and the wider population. So then Adler moves into talking about the locating, co-locating, and just collecting of books on shelves. Um, so going into the physical Library of Congress or libraries anywhere that use Library of Congress subject headings to determine where things are located and looking at what is physically there. She calls this process mapping perversion, bringing back the perversion from the title and also from the earlier section that Becca talked about. Mm -hmm. And in this, she discusses how books on queer and queer related subjects are scattered around the collection. Um, 
texts here have also been dehistoricized by Library of Congress librarians and by librarians um, generally, and the librarian of Congress, um, with attempts to redefine or remove hierarchies in the tags. So Adler has a great phrase for this, calling the, this the intermingling of temporalities, where, as <laughs> Becca was talking about earlier, books from different time periods, where there were totally different vocabularies in use, are right next to each other on the shelves. Um, and then also books that are on very different subjects. So you can have woman as a sexual criminal sitting right next to positive views of LGBTQ. <laughs> and then that there are implications in this, that if you see these located together on the shelf, whether or not they are intended to be a judgment, the impact is that woman is a sexual criminal and LGBTQ positive identities are equated in some way. Yes, and to further that point, um, Adler basically brings all of these elements together in a case study on the Library of Congress's treatment of race, uh, particularly African-American and Black experiences and identities, and discusses the impossibility of representing intersectional uh, identities and subjectivities, especially queer of color experiences. So the Library of Congress's uh, bibliographic classification um, assumes whiteness and heterosexuality from a Western point of view. The role of state racism in defining these categories is white, prevalent, and easy to see if you actually know to look for it. Uh, so Adler moves on to talk about the suggestion of moving towards reparative taxonomies. As she says, the aim is not to fix the existing systems, but rather to reconfigure relations according to local and personal vantage points. Adler goes on to posit that it is impossible to avoid cataloging and categorization, but that it must be done in recognition of these problems. And that, although a classification and invention of concepts are always re-territorializations and reclaimings, they are necessary in order to retrieve text and in fact can be a method of empowerment through augmenting, replacing, and or inverting the Library of Congress classifications in place. So sadomasochism specifically undergirds her conclusion, particularly the idea that the library user is a masochist who may use recognition and knowledge of and consent to the power games of the library to empower themselves. And I want to give a little background on how she's using these words. So one of the interesting things that Adler does is she uses both um, academic and then sort of a kink culture definitions of sadism and masochism. She never specifically says that she's using it from kink culture, but I'm going to bring a little bit of experience into this. So Adler makes a distinction between sadism and masochism as opposites of each other. She brings in an argument that actually the opposite of a masochist is not a sadist. It's a dom or a dominant. Um, and what she's using, the way she's using masochism in this sense is a masochist is a position in which a person is actually in charge. They, uh, the dom is serving the masochist by bringing in the discipline to create a particular kind of pleasure. So thus, in this particular space, the masochism actually functions as a form of resistance. It's mm -hmm. using this dominance as a way to get its own pleasure, to wrest the concept of dominance from the sadistic concept of ordering. Mm 
-hmm. So she's imposing this idea of sexual sadomasochism and kink onto the idea of the sadist as the organizer um, and onto the idea of dominance. And so masochism becomes this position from which the library user can subvert dominance for pleasure. Um, and Adler specifically says, it is by submitting to the law that users find their books and their pleasures. In order to use the library, users must subject themselves to these dividing practices and participate in the denial of intertextuality and intersubjectivity by seeking texts as determined and disciplined by the rules. So the masochist submits to discipline in order to obtain pleasure that might not necessarily have been intended by the dominant force. Mm -hmm. All right, so basically to um, bring us into the more freeform um, discussion, I would like to start us off with talking about how libraries are not neutral spaces. It, <laughs> it may seem pretty intuitive, um, given the fact that people run libraries, meaning libraries cannot be neutral because people, people cannot be neutral. <laughs> I know this is a wild concept, but um, essentially I think it's really important that we bring this to light and talk about it more often than I think we do um, because it's you. there's no way that you as a human and as a theoretical librarian in this theoretical space um, can be unbiased and it's w much more important and much more uh, productive. It's much more productive to recognize that you have bias than to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist because if you can recognize that you have bias, you can work against it. And that's what's really important, I think, um, especially for libraries and um, librarians who are not of certain uh, marginalized identities to recognize that they probably have implicit bias and they can work against that. Yeah, and this is absolutely a callback to one of the first things we talked about in this class, like in mm -hmm. the very first book, when we talked about how, you know, librarians uh, like to think of themselves as the bastions of equality and access to information. That's sort of, that's the Kool-Aid, right? Like, we all like, <laughs> we all get, Kool-Aid. No, that's the Kool-Aid. We all came yeah, into exactly. library school because we drank that Kool-Aid. <laughs> I think it's also really notice, notable that, uh, she, uh, that Adler even goes back, back to algorithms of a algorithm algorithms of oppression when she talks about her black lesbians versus african-american lesbian Absolutely. search terms on yep. page 146 mm -hmm. yep but the fact that like these claims to access and freedom as you were starting to say mm -hmm. that just obfuscates what librarians are actually doing like yes. at one point adler says like we trusted li libraries went astray mm -hmm. because we trusted librarians so implicitly mm -hmm. yep. yeah <laughs> yep. it's it's really important and i i think that it's something that um we should just continue to think about um either in the back or the front of our brains um, <laughs> as we as we continue on our our journeys of professional development or whatnot well and I, I, I think it's really important I think it's really important that Adler is bringing this idea of library classifications into serious scholarship and yeah. serious examination yeah, because really the, her main point is this is something that has gone unexamined for way too long because we've just trusted that librarians yeah. are doing this with all our best interests at heart mm -hmm. as though librarians were not human beings with 
Elizabeth Biases, who served as handmaids or handmen of the state. Yeah, and <laughs> like, the, that's exactly it, as we were hand talking. Handbutlers. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we are talking about with this book, um, because as libraries are not neutral spaces, like just your regular public library is not a neutral space, your regular academic library is not a neutral space, Neither is the Library of Congress. It's run by people. It's a governmental institution yes. for the government. Yes. That means there are certain things that it does and certain interests that it contains that people tend to forget about. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we just recognize that, like, hey, you know, the Library of Congress doesn't necessarily have the general public in mind when it does these things. Right. It has Congress in right. mind. Right, and she, <laughs> she has, she's made the point several times that, like, the Library of Congress has escaped the scrutiny of other bureaucratic institutions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because people believe in it in a certain particular way. And exactly, also she exactly. goes into detail at one point of how the ALA said, this is bad, and Library <laughs> of Congress went on and said, we're doing it anyway because the government wants us to. So she's, yep. uh, we see yep. in this book the ALA and the Library of Congress, which people think of as two very similar institutions with similar goals as being fundamentally opposed, particularly when it comes to subversive <laughs> materials, which he yeah, talks about right. on page 69. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had not okay. even noticed that. And with all that, she has this excellent quote about that link between the Library of Congress and the state again, where library classifications, quote, are in fact among Hegemony's handmaids, right? <laughs> Serving and supporting the state by imposing an infrastructural knowledge organization system that sustains dominant norms. Yes. Right. So basically, um, those in power will replicate that power. They'll put into place, if not already, um, and continue ways to further their own power and also to uphold that process of power. Right. So, yeah. And, I mean, the point she's making that's so good, I mean, it, from my perspective, like, coming at this as a psychiatrist and, like, a person with a little bit of sexology training, it's, like, it's not an accident that the Library of Congress chose a progression of terminology that actually comes from the most conservative end of mm. psychiatry like that th that it's it's from the most dominant side it's from the most restrictive side of sexology mm -hmm. the least progressive side mm -hmm. it's the one that you know they chose that the particular texts they chose as their reference texts as she points out at one point are not even things that are universally agreed on in the field or the most progressive side of the research in the field like that's and that's not an accident right yeah. like it's it's a power structure replicating a power structure replicating a power structure that it doesn't necessarily fully understand which i think is kind of hilarious also but as, like <laughs> in the psychiatry side so like i wanted to i wanted to draw people's attention like real quick um to page uh 32 and uh, 33 where she does this really lovely tree diagram of where the term paraphilias leads you and what's fascinating about this is that you know paraphilias as a diagnosis means a particular thing to me um because of my training <laughs> and like one 
act out of paraphilias is lust murder, which I just want to point out to everyone, like, that's not a diagnosis. I don't know why that's there. Lust murder is not a paraphilia. Like, even if, even if you were going to accept paraphilia, which I don't, I don't accept paraphilia in this context. I want to make that clear. But even if you were going to accept paraphilia in this context as a word that you would use, that's not a proper use of it. Paraphilia, lust murder is not a paraphilia. Um, and then even within psychosexual disorders, like which things come under psychosexual disorders, transvestism is not is listed as a paraphilia actually in the DSM, which a lot of people have had many problems with, and I won't get started on that because that's a whole rant. Yep. Um, <laughs> but as a psychosexual disorder, that's its subclassification, which even within the discipline of sexology no longer makes sense inside that discipline. It's a, a relic of, it's a relic, yeah, of an institution of power that no longer makes sense within that discipline that continues to replicate itself. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, there are a lot of relics that just continue, um, as you were saying about old, older things being lumped in with new things. That's, that's just accepting a relic and running with it and I think that's not helpful or useful all of these things that have been listed there over time and then as hierarchies change as understandings of things change then it's mm. just like Whoop, we're gonna sweep that under the rug oh we're changing it doesn't matter we don't have to go in and actually change anything specifically. no no we're not even gonna look at what these books are that are classified under this anymore we're just gonna change it with a big old machine because we've decided that this means the same as this because computers yeah. Woo! and then that gets back yeah. to our discussions of technology right technology yeah, exactly, is also exactly. not neutral <laughs> oh yes yeah. mm -hmm. brilliant actually yeah mm -hmm. i think it's uh, i just uh I know. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a cohesive way to explain that I am frustrated. Well, it's, it is it is a frustrating project, and I think I, I felt some sympathy too as Adler is starting to point out. I think it was in chapter three that she starts to point this out that like the problem is the book can only be in one place on the shelf. I mean that's just a fact. So we have to classify it, and there is this problem that is not completely solvable in a completely satisfying way. Where when mm. you pick one classification, that will necessarily exclude other classifications. Mm -hmm. However, yeah. comma. Yeah. However, <laughs> comma. <laughs> However, comma. Yeah. We can talk. There's got to be. There are better ways to do right. it. Right. <laughs> like we talk. Like uh, in the she talks a lot about the standardization like you know it's like mm -hmm. lesbian is by default white so black lesbian is derivative and right like so we t and <sighs> race like the people is default white black is default heterosexual like there's got to be there are ways to distance yourselves from that normative norma normativity normativity yeah yeah, yeah. and the yeah. inherent racism heteronormativity, cisnormativity, et cetera, et cetera, that yeah. we have embedded in this system. Right. And, and, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I think it's important uh, that you bring that up, especially because, um, like, you can have, you can have a subject heading um, and all of this, but you can also have, like, linked data, as we're, as we're talking about mm -hmm. in... Uh, 602 yep. and um, linked metadata is really important um, also going back to the fact that libraries are not neutral spaces um, the idea of lesbian being default white is a reflection on society right I, mm -hmm. I will tell you as a queer person of color queer 
is in general thought of as more white, even though historically it's based in like if you want to go back way back to like Stonewall and talk about how hey yeah. did you know that trans women of color P. Johnson and Silvia Rivera yeah black women, <laughs> women of color yeah, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. black trans women of color right. yeah and it, these these people were spearheading the reclamation of queer and in contemporary use um queer tends to be at least in my experience much more centered around people of color and because of its more fluid uh more fluid way of thinking about sexuality because as a person of color you have a different relationship absolutely. to sexuality absolutely I, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> and you grew up with a different cultural understanding i mean because i'm coming i didn't say this at the top of the show but i'm latina yeah. um and so like coming at that too there's a whole other subset of understandings yes. of what queerness is and what sexuality is and i just wanted to actually draw everybody's attention to this great map on page 109 um where she shows how many books are in which library of congress subject heading and it's really interesting to me how many books are sitting in paraphilias in hq 71 sexual practices outside of social norms that could just as easily have been moved over to HQ 12 human sexuality history sex customs or you know HQ 21 human sexuality sexual behavior and attitudes like there are there are other topic designations that exist where some of these books could be moved to but by, and as she points out, I'm not pointing this out, she did, that by sitting in the paraphilias subcategory, what's actually happening is that these books are being effectively censored by bad cataloging. It's mm. it's harder to yeah. find them, you know? Because, I mean, I, I'm a psychiatrist, okay? I'm a fucking psychiatrist. <laughs> and I would not go... Damn, I respect you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I have to bleep that out. I would not go into the paraphilias subheading to look for some of these books it would not have occurred to me to do it and i'm a person whose medical vocabulary that theoretically is that's how bad that is yes and i think and so i think actually this is a really good launching point into talking about the delta collection which although uh it doesn't exist as the delta collection in most modern libraries it does still exist because people do still want to keep pornography out of the hands of actual children, which, you know, that's understandable. The Wisconsin Historical (laughs) Society's library has a full collection of Playboy in their restricted collection. Oh, I have an aside. Um, So, like, uh, three three months ago, I was at a uh, sexology research conference, and someone presented research that they had done on the characteristics of Playgirl Centerfold through the years. And they had done this because the Library of Congress has a collection. It's in their restricted section of Playgirl magazines going all the way back to the advent of Playgirl, which enabled the, this team of researchers to like study the, the characteristics of Playgirl Centerfolds and how they had evolved. Anyway, these, these collections do matter. They are, exist and they're yeah. useful. Yes. Yeah, and like, it makes sense. And also, uh, Adler points this out at one point. It's not just for the restriction to keep these materials away from patrons is to protect the materials from patrons yes in this restricted collection at the wisconsin historical society's library many books in there are political in nature that are frequently targets of theft or vandalism or or vandalism and that's an important aspect like we're not we like i am personally at least not saying that no restricted collections should ever exist because, yeah, you probably don't want your five-year-old looking uh, looking at a pornographic magazine. Well, and also to be fair, like I'm thinking of these old issues of Playgirl again. Like they're delicate. 
Like you yeah. don't, you I mean they're fragile. Like you it's wouldn't want. Why them. a lot of like, a lot of libraries do put their uh, censored materials or like their not safe for work materials in with their rare books collection, which is the case at the library at the Wisconsin Historical Society. These things exist, but what the Library of Congress's Delta collection is mainly fueled by is the Comstead Act, and the Comstead Act. It was passed in 1873, and it banned the dis distribution of obscene materials via the mail. Mm -hmm. And this is actually one of the most influential acts of Congress that refer as as applies to both sex education and the LGBT community. Because um, one way to get around the fact in the er in the earlier part of the LGBT community's um, active activity was this idea, like they it, they would try to distribute. LGBT resources, including novels, through the mail because no bookstore would stock them. Right. But they would be seized and pulped right. very frequently because they were seen as obscene. So the way to get about this was uh, the was what we know today as gay tragedy. Mm -hmm. This idea that you could publish an LGBT novel if at the end the characters suffered further further sexuality or realized they weren't actually gay. The first uh, successful instance of this is uh, Packer is uh, Packer's novel *Spring Fire*, which mm. was extremely popular, and I have actually read it uh, because it was republished finally very recently. And it contains the story of two women in a sorority, one of whom is sent to an insane asylum at the end of the story, and the other realizes she was straight all along and just had been misled by this tra by this tragic tragic lesbian this tragic <laughs> yeah. vicious abusive yeah. lesbian <laughs> and it's like this is what was insanely popular because and this has affected to this day the kind of lgbt stories that get made when you think of lgbt movies most of the time they are brokeback mountain or things similar things gay tragedies with a bad ending because this is the only way that lgbt material was seen as acceptable if it is tragic, because they can't, because because ma mainstream audiences still to this day, in part because of the Comstead Act, can't conceive of happy LGBT sexuality. So this Comstead Act is devastating to this day to the LGBT community. Right, right. And it's a fallacy to think that all of this stuff that Adler's talking about is somehow, you know, frozen in the past. I mean, that's part of the point. All of this is still active. All of this is still reflected in the culture. And, I mean, when Adler makes her point about WorldCat, it's disseminated worldwide. Like, these yeah. classification schemes, we're perpetuating this idea on a, these ideas and these power structures on a global scale. Yeah, and that's a second sort of another way of looking at that dehistoricizing, too, that we talked about earlier, that it's not just that texts that were written in, you know, the 90s, the 20s, the 50s are shelved alongside texts written today with no real differentiation and distinction to say, hey, this is from this particular context when this vocabulary was in use. But dehistoricizing also serves to kind of put the things that were written today into that time capsule and say, like, oh, we're, we're distanced from this. Look right. at this. This, this is... This is a history. It's not a present. It's not something right. that's continually evolving now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we have to, like, wrap this up in a bow, which, I mean, we can't really, because part of the whole point is we shouldn't be wrapping things up in bows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because yeah. the wrapping things up of in bows is the idea of universalizing, which depends on exclusion and marginalization. So let's not do that. Um, but, the, I mean, I think Adler doesn't really offer us a neat solution for this, more just that we should be talking about this and talking mm -hmm. about it in a serious academic way and giving it the same kind of critical examination that we give to every other federal bureaucracy and every other large system of domination.
government agencies that have to do with information are widely one of the most trusted sources of information, even when they necessarily shouldn't be. Statistics have shown, shown uh, the Smithsonian did a study on this recently, of just how trusted museums, archives, and libraries are for as sources of information. And as we have seen in this book, that's not necessarily a good thing. We need to criticize and we need to question these structures because especially the Library of Congress and other government ones, they have their own purpose. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps up the discussion, yes? I, I think so, yeah. I would just put in quickly that as a final note, we can cut this if we need to, that Adler contextualizes herself as someone who loves libraries. Right. So we've been fairly critical of the Library of Congress and all this, as I think we all agree that we should be, but that the point of this is not to say like, screw you, Library of Congress, forever, go away, no more classifications. <laughs> it's, we need to critique this. We need to look into this and hold things accountable to the harm that they have had and move towards reparative. Right, critique it to this. love it seriously. Yes. 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 Thank you so much for listening. Hi, and welcome to the iSchool segment of the iSchool podcast. Today we have with us Scott Seiforth, who holds a PhD in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he is an Assistant Director of Residence Life. He is one of the founders of Madison's LGBTQ Oral History Project and the Madison LGBTQ Archive. Okay, Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Samantha. Um, okay, so could you tell us a little bit about how the LGBTQ archive came into existence? Yeah, well, I like to blame Troy Reeves, who's the oral historian on campus. Troy came here in about 2007 and noticed the dearth of information about um, queer folk in the oral history collection and went about trying to fix that. And he created a sort of a community advisory panel to help him um, do that. He got permission from the library system to expand what they were collecting on beyond just the university, which is what you know the university archive is supposed to collect on, and to do Madison proper. So collect queer oral histories from Madison. And um, so Troy started this process of having community, a community university partnership. Um, we had community meetings, invited people into um, you know, being trained about collecting oral histories and, you know, and then went about collecting them. And we now have over 80, oh. up north of 80. Um, I don't even know exactly how many. <laughs> and one of the things that we did, you know, we started by going to some of the most elderly people in town uh, who, after we got done interviewing them, would invariably say, hey, I got some stuff here. Would you be interested in that? And... At the time, the university archives did not want to expand their collection to stuff. They just wanted to do the oral histories. Mm -hmm. And so after about seven years and losing a lot, uh, several major collections to the landfill, oh. um, mm -hmm. Troy and his boss, David Null, went to the library system and said, could we expand what we're doing to collect stuff? And we got permission to do that. Um, we went out and fundraised and, um, in the community and got money to hire a halftime archivist and to pay for our own expenses so that um, the community is paying to do it and the university is housing it. Hmm. 
And so and that started in 2015. And so since then, we've been collecting. Cool. Great. Great. Um, so could you tell us, so I know um, the archive just was recognized with the 2018 Governor's Archives Award for Archival Advocacy. Um, could you tell us, like, what does that mean for the archive to be recognized for that and receive that award? Well, it's a lovely honor, right? And I mean, it's, it's uh, some of our, the, our peers in the community nominated us for the, us, and that was us for that. That was very nice. Um, you know, it's nice for the committee, but it's nice for the community. You know, several hundred people have been involved in making this happen, mm-hmm. and so it's a. It's a recognition of this, the effort of very many people who have been involved in, you know, over 100 people donating items and another large number of people helping get collections in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of recognition to all those people for a lot of effort over the last four years. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, out of all of the things that you've collected, um, what would you say are some of the highlights within the collection, you know, in terms of... Um, types of materials or you know, specific stories? Yeah. Well, so one of the great things that they let us do is they let us collect broadly. So it's organizational papers, but it's also diaries and photos and film and buttons and T-shirts and video. And, you know, I mean, it's they're letting us go broad. We've got some art, some different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and we're collecting in an area that just has not been collected. Right? Yeah. It gets hard to say what's best when it's like everything's <laughs> unique yeah. and everything's rare new. and yeah. wonderful, yeah. you know, and it's such an important part of telling a never told before local story, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can do some personal fa- favorites. I don't know. It's, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Interesting to know. You know, it's I don't know. I mean, so like, personally, like, I want a visual history. And so for me, some of the, like, photo collections that have come in have been, like, really awesome. Jim Yaden gave us 30 years of pictures he took at local pride events. Oh, wow. Come on, you're yeah. killing me with that. <laughs> Through the years, yeah. 30 years. It's an amazing wow. gift, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a man who was a student here and a bartender at, um, there was a bar here in the 50s and 60s. Before there were actual gay-owned gay bars, there was a bar here that allowed gay men to gather in it during the 1950s and 1960s. Wow. And there was a student who was a bartender there who was a photographer and he used to carry his camera on his neck all the time. Mm-hmm. And he had over four, 500 images that he took, interior images of this gay male gathering place wow. in the 1960s. Pre-Stonewall, Midwest, gay male gathering place, interior wow. images. Wow. And we found him and he gave us his images. We had a we had a photography exhibit that was up in the Union f- during Pride Month a couple years ago. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff is fun. The diaries that people have given are kind of magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jess Anderson gave us a run of diaries from 54 to 94. 
Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? So pre- 20 years pre and post Stonewall. And Je- and and Jess was one of the like, founders of the Gay Liberation Front here, you know, in 1969. And was really active, really, really active pre-Stonewall organizing. Wow. Michael Bemis, who was one of the founders of the Madison AIDS Support Network and was an AIDS counselor here for 10 years during the height of the plague, gave us a 40-year run of his diary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff is kind of great. We have a collection of... There was a man in town by the name of David Runyon who had a local gay cable access television show called Nothing to Hide. It ran on Sunday nights at 7 (laughs) o'clock. And it ran from 1980, like 1982, to his death in 2001. When he died in 2001, it was the longest running gay television program anywhere in the world. And we have over 900 of his videotapes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. A lot of them are really... Marvelous. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. All these things that, you know, you wouldn't know that were out there, that were gifted, was that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, and some things, like people, some things, like it isn't like one person has a huge collection, but so for instance, there was a local um, lesbian bar and restaurant called Lysistrata Mm -hmm. that existed that was a really important gathering place in town. And, um, um, an a- activist space, super important place, and um, it burned to the ground, and so like all the primary records, you know, were lost. But because a number of different people have all given what they have, we end up having, you know, a reasonably good collection of mat- material on this Estrada. Mm-hmm. right? So some of this happens not because one person gives like the fabulous mm-hmm. gift, but because like. The eight of you all gave four fabulous things, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's the, like the original crowdsourcing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah, you've uh, highlighted a lot of things that have already been collected. Are there any projects or collections that the archive is working on or that you're excited about in the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of things. I mean, we're only just getting started. I mean... I don't want to name things specifically or people we're talking with, you know, because I don't yeah. think that's fair to people. Sure. Um, and I will tell you that the process of getting to donate, like, it is a process. Like, I can tell you if you call someone up and say, would you be willing to donate all your queer stuff? It's very rare that they say, yes, come over <laughs> immediately and bring boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to build that relationship yeah. and make that connection. Those are such, such special items connected like to people so deeply. And yeah. I bet even if you do have a relationship, people are still kind of like, mm, what am I donating this to? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who has ownership of it? Yeah. Yeah. Who has ownership? Who will be yeah. seeing it? Mm-hmm. Why do you want my stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how are you going to take care of it over time for mm-hmm. real? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's going to have access to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of concerns. You know, and the library has not been good custodians of queer stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there is not, I wouldn't say there's wonderful feelings in the community about donating to the library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's trust issues, mm-hmm. certainly. That's true. Yeah. So one of the things I found is that, you know, We've been at this now for four years, and that just recently, several big collections have called us. People, some of the the first people I talked to four years ago, 
have just decided now that now's the time for me. Because it took some time for yeah. them to think about through some of the things we just talked about and the relationship building and the talking yeah. through some of the concerns and all those, you know, to decide in the sort of personal, deciding personally I'm ready to give, to let go of this mm-hmm. now and have it be elsewhere. Yeah. You know, so it's a process. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that was a, not exactly what you asked, but it's what I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, there's this, um, yeah. I don't know exactly what this. I would say some of the projects we're working on right now. I say in the oral history department, we're trying to. Um, we have a an initiative to collect more bi, trans, and queer oral histories, and so we have someone working on that. We're paying someone to do some work in that area. Um, you know, one of the things we're really interested in is um, trying to find ways to um, make the collection be usable and make some of it become known in the community and not just have it be in the boxes and mm-hmm. have it be so like we hired a student by the name of Kristen Whitson an high school student yeah. who is <laughs> <laughs> um, to do social media outreach for us and to try find stuff and tell you know use some of the social media platforms to push out mm-hmm. some of this into the community and make it be known right we talk every year about we have we've had these sort of um, outreach efforts like the photo exhibit I talked about. We've had some like pop up exhibit nights at Steenbach where we've had big chunks of major collections that have come in and had them interpreted and have like a night where, where it's all a community night and we've had you know several hundred people show up and come and see stuff right as a way of like having there be access to it. So we continue to talk about you know what kind of outreach events can we do? We're, we're playing with the idea of having some. Um, history panel discussions, you know, and of course, the, but then like there's a hundred ways you could do that or <laughs> things you could focus on um, as a way of trying to, you know, talk more about local queer history. Sure. That's yeah. awesome. Is there anywhere in particular that you'd like to see some of the things that you haven't quite made it? Maybe someone out there knows a connection? <laughs> oh, things we're looking for? Yeah, so things you're looking for or places, mm-hmm. yeah. Or a place we'd like to see it? Yeah, places like that if you'd like to, you know, you did oh, something. So like do a pop-up? Pop, yeah, or... a pop-up or display some things like you did at Union South, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah we love I mean, we were, we've been talking about how can we do things. Like, should we make a traveling exhibit that could travel mm-hmm. to libraries in Dane County? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, because the people do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, and so, and then what would the focus be? You know, mm-hmm. and how much would it cost to hire somebody and make it be pretty? And then, <laughs> or who do we know that could help us make it be pretty because mm-hmm. uh, Scott doesn't know how to do that? Or, <laughs> or whatever. Like, does that, those kind of, yeah. Yeah. We'd we be having that kind of, those kind of conversations, yeah. I guess the, your question, or the question you you said about, is there stuff out there that you'd like to see happen or like to collect that you, yeah, that hasn't been? Yeah, there's so much out there. There are so, there are a number of organizations, you know, that have yet to feel like it's time. And I will say, since I'm talking to students on campus, that we would love to have student orgs donate. Hmm. I think we would love to have students. We'd love to have students come and do oral histories of other queer students, like do snapshots of today. Like I think sometimes people think that I can't. I'm, I don't have anything to give to the archive till I'm eighty, <laughs> and I, that's not how we view it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Like, I think there's there's so many queer student orgs doing interesting stuff right now. And boy, if you wanted to like print out all of your what emails or whatever, and you're like, give us your posters and like the stuff, the swag you made and or whatever, and have like a year this year time capsule of stuff we did, we would think that was the greatest thing ever. So audience out there, don't hesitate. <laughs> Make the action. Yeah. Get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any more opportunities for high school students to get more involved in the archive thing? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, if you want to talk to students, you know, mm -hmm. really, I mean, I think that's how donations come in. But I'm always surprised. It's not just that the committee members are going out and asking people. Stuff just walks in because people have read about it in our lives or their friends told them about it. My friend said I needed to bring this, this bag of stuff here. And they just show up at Steambach and drop it off. We've had the most beautiful stuff just walk in the door mm -hmm. because local people have talked to their friends and said, you know, that interesting, that interesting stuff you have, you should really give that. Mm -hmm. It's time for that to not just be in, in, underneath your bed. You know, mm -hmm. so like, I think your ability to activate other st students to activate other students, I would not, you know, give short shrift to. Mm -hmm. That's totally true. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, are there any opportunities for high school students to get involved, like volunteering or helping with any like anything that the archives um, are doing? That's a great question. I mean, I think that you know Troy. I think is interested would be interested in having people help collect oral histories. And again, we would love to have students collect oral histories of students. Mm -hmm. So if that's an interest, you know, feel free to reach out to Troy. Okay. Well, great. thank you very much for all of your time and uh, for getting this started. You know, co-founding this archive on campus here. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. It was fun. Fun to talk with you all about it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Welcome back to the Eyes Cool podcast. My name is Isabelle Vivo. I'm a first year iSchool student. I'm Anjali Beck. I'm also a first year iSchool student. So this week for our current event segment, we wanted to talk about a article that came out in the Washington Post this week uh, titled Angry Parents Protest LGBTQ Books in Virginia Classrooms. And this is about Loudoun County in Virginia, where the Loudoun County School District recently added some titles to diversify their classroom libraries. And even though LGBTQ books were uh, or represent less than 5% of the books that they added to these collections, Parents have been very upset about the changes, and there's been a lot of controversy, including a six-hour school board meeting where parents who were both for and against the books discussed their reasoning. Um, I think this is first and foremost an issue of intellectual freedom, which is something that we've talked about a lot here at the iSchool. And honestly, it really baffles me that parents are so upset about this because it, no one is forcing their children to read these books. 
And I think that libraries have a duty to provide books on all subjects to all patrons. And if you don't want your child to read it, don't let your child read it, but you shouldn't be able to stop them from being available to other children who could really benefit from this literature. Especially now, since it seems like these types of books are growing in popularity. They've always been there and always been available, but they're becoming more in the spotlight because of the times that we are now in. Mm -hmm. And they're so much more available now, which is amazing, but it's also... Like I said, less than 5% of the books in these collections are LGBTQ titles. And the only reason that it feels like so much is because they haven't been this accessible before. But I, <laughs> I don't know. I get so frustrated. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's, it's very frustrating to think about. Because having these books in the classroom is just exposure to the children. It doesn't influence them to be gay straight or queer or any of those things it's just a learning experience that they know this is a possible thing to be not that they are but it's out there and they know it exists Mm -hmm. and it's also so important for kids who know that they fit within the lgbtq umbrella and to have resources and literature that reflects that experience. One of the moms in this article who's quoted talks about her son coming out and uh, he is now a junior in college, but went to Loudoun County schools his entire life. And uh, when he was In high school, he ended up coming out, and even though he had supportive friends and supportive family, she said that he really, really struggled. Uh, I think she says that he almost had a mental breakdown before he came out, and she really strongly felt that if he had been able to read stories about other people who were dealing with that and who had come out and survived, and maybe even thrived, then he would have had a much easier time accepting his identity and taking that step to be who he is. Yeah, not having these books available at all makes it very difficult for those who are this to be themselves. I get really frustrated by the arguments against it because the main argument that a lot of these parents have been making is that LGBTQ materials are perverse, or are teaching children that rape is okay, which I don't know where that came from. Where um, does that come from? It's, it's not even like explicitly stated in anything, even if it's in straight yeah, things about straight people. Like, it's there, it's a thing, but it's mm-hmm. never brought up. But I think that being part of the LGBTQ community is so closely identified with sexuality even though like I think it is part of it but there's but it's this, not the whole picture yeah and there's this myth that to write a book about LGBTQ people means that the whole thing is sexually explicit and many of the ones that are like aimed at children just have the relationship and they don't get into details about anything 
tells you about the possibility. It doesn't throw it in your face. Exactly. And I don't think that these books are any more sexually explicit than other YA content is. Very true. But because parents know that these books are LGBTQ, they go in and they read them looking for these excerpts. And so they will pull out profanity or sex scenes or even just scenes of intimacy and say, I can't have my child reading this. One parent referred to it as written porn, I think. Yeah, that was a, yep. Uh, One parent said, I cannot stomach reading written porn, but my child can. Um, And I believe it was in reference to Georgia Peaches and Other Forbidden Fruit, uh, which is one of the titles that parents specifically brought up that had been added to the high school collections in Loudoun County. And I, it makes me wonder, had these parents read any other titles in that collection that weren't LGBTQ? Because I can think of plenty of sexually explicit YA material that involves heterosexual couples. True. And they have, don't seem to have had a problem with any of those. That's, like, super true. I feel like the majority of of young adult novels will have some sort of relationship like that and they Mm -hmm. will say they will have sexual content Mm -hmm. but people aren't against that they're just like oh it's just part of the story Mm -hmm. like they sweep it under the rug like it's no big deal yeah or like that's just what teenagers do and they're right (laughs) including lgbtq teenagers so Um, but I, I really liked the article ends with a quote from a mother that I think sums up a really solid, um, argument or I guess counter argument to this idea that these materials are sexually explicit, which is I'd rather have a kid read a book that happens to mention masturbation or kissing instead of risk losing my child forever. And this is the same mom whose son had come out and really struggled with that process and who felt that these materials would have made his life 10 times easier. Um, And the number of LGBTQ youth who are facing not only discrimination, but unsafe family environments, mental health issues, homelessness, um, all of that can be addressed in these materials and give them a frame of reference and a bit of hope that their situation isn't going to end badly. It's, yeah, that's it's true. And it's really interesting because when parents have something against like LGBTQ literature, especially if it's aimed towards younger children, it's not even always written as characters that are people. Oh be, my gosh. It could be it could be animals. And be, Tango makes like, three. Like Tango makes three. Mm-hmm. That book had such a big backlash and I'm like, they're just penguins. They're raising a baby. That's all it is. And it's such a sweet book. I, I love that book. <laughs> I don't know. This is just a never ending argument and it really shouldn't be an argument. It should be like I think what it is, is it's an argument, but I feel like everyone can kind of see points on both sides, but they all are like, but it isn't convincing you to do this. It's just like, here's this, here's what it is, and it's there to help those that need it. It's not there for everyone, but it's available to everyone, and that is the point. Exactly. That's what libraries are all about, is providing materials and information 
to everyone and taking these books out of their collection simply because a few parents are upset about it doesn't make sense. I think libraries need to be able to say, we are here to serve everyone and though this book does not fit with what you your views and expectations of literature exactly. it's there for others mm-hmm. and we have plenty of other books that will suit your needs so why don't you find one of those or better yet i'll help you find one of those yes <laughs> um and i we can also we'll include this uh, a link to this article in the show notes, show notes yeah. for anybody who would like to read it um and get a better idea of what's happening in Loudoun County and what may happen because currently there are 10 books from these collections that are in intellectual freedom disputes and are up for potential removal from the collections. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens to those books. Thanks for listening. And that is all for this episode of the Eyes Cool podcast, because Eyes Cool sounds like ice school. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week 